Welcome to Civic Discourse, a podcast all about civics and political free government conversation. I am Jake Bailey, and I will be hosting these conversations, and with me is my dad, Chad Bailey. He has spent the last 30 years of his life teaching government and history. What we hope for this to be is an informative, educational, and enlightening conversation. There is an ignorance in today's society about civics and government that has been swallowed up by the party politics of today. There has become a left or a right, a conservative or a liberal, and a Republican or a Democrat. We hope to strip out the bowl of party politics and have a genuine conversation about civics. So let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of Civic Discourse. This week we are going to start our conversation on Article 3, which is about the judges and the federal courts. Uh, Before we do that, though, let's just recap what uh, we talked about last week with Article 2. Dad, why don't you recap us? Well, we've we've finally finished up uh, Article 2 and going through uh, the the, uh, executive powers and the limitations put on the president. Um, I don't know how thorough... If, if, yeah. if you need to go back and listen to it again, get back on uh, the podcast and listen to it. Yeah, that works. Yep. So we, yep, we finished article three or two, two. which was the uh, executive branch. And so we're just working our way through the articles. And uh, in terms of the length of the constitution, we're probably at the halfway point, but in terms of the articles, uh, we're two sevenths of the way through. Uh, so uh, section one of article three, just, beginning stages just talks about the judges and the federal court uh dad why don't you kind of highlight what that section talks about okay so um first of all the judicial powers are going to be uh put into in, in the constitution going they created the supreme court so all judicial powers would be vested in a supreme court um and then also in this on the uh, constitutional side of it they also created a supreme court chief justice um, so everything else is we can add to it the inferior courts were uh, created by congress um, and those are outlined in the district courts the court of appeals so on and so forth and um, the supreme court justices have what we call a lifetime term um, actually, most federal judges uh, are appointed to where you could argue that to almost a lifetime term, but it's not written in the Constitution. They are um, they they do seem to stay there until retirement and or uh, being deceased. Mm-hmm. So there there has been one instance of a, a district judge. Uh, resigning his seat on the bench to to become a uh, the attorney general, which is the current attorney general. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm blanking on it. He was the uh, uh, the uh, Obama's nominee for taking yeah. Kennedy's spot. Uh, Mer- America, America Garland. Garland. Yes. Yep. There we go. So, well, and just as a side note. We're talking about Supreme Court. There's a lot of lot of justices we could talk about, but one that, one that I find very interesting was 
President Taft served one term as president, and then he gets appointed as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Yeah, well, and we will actually be talking about him a little bit later in uh, in this episode. Yeah. Uh, you know, something he did while during his time uh, as Chief Justice. Um, but yeah, so yeah, judges maintain their office until retirement or right. death. Uh, they also it, it talked about compensation. Doesn't say exactly what, but says they will be compensated. The, comp- um, the compensation is is pretty close to. Uh, Congressional pay. Uh, it's just right below congressional pay, which is about 174000 a year. Kind of like it's, teach the retired teacher pay is about the same thing. Yeah. It honestly probably should be more now because this oh. court seems to seems to be doing more than, than the yeah. legislative does. But you know what? That's 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 a, another conversation for a different time. It just had a major decision last night, and that's what you're talking about, I'm sure. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm just talking in general. Just, just general. Seems like, yeah. It just seems like Congress is always taking oh, yeah. forever to do something and, or yeah, just think, not doing something. I think Congress is, doing something. Congress is still on recess, whatever that means anymore. Yeah, uh, and, I'd like to and, know what the, what the session is supposed to be like. <laughs> yeah, and, and the Supreme Court, the, the justices are supposed to be in, in their uh, yearly recess right now. Well, right. I guess it, it is September, so, so they're, you know, they're off of it, but. Yeah. Um, and uh, which brings us to this isn't in the Constitution, but this is information. Uh, the Supreme Court currently hears arguments on the first Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays of the of the first two weeks of each month, uh, yeah. beginning on the first Monday of the month. So this October, the first Friday or the October 1st is a Friday. However, they don't start on a Friday. They start on a Monday. Monday, yeah. Uh, so it's the first Monday and then the Wednesday, Friday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday after that. Uh, as long as those days don't intersect with a federal holiday, which the second Monday of October obviously always will. Um, and the October 2021-22 co- term uh, will begin October 4th. Yeah. And uh, it'll be hearing, I believe it's two... Uh, yeah, it'll be hearing two arguments that day: Mississippi versus Tennessee and Wooden versus uh, United States. Yeah. Uh, both are both are a little boring, but they both highlight actually uh, the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court, and we will get in uh, this next section here a little bit. Uh, so let's go to section. Don't you start us off by talking about that? Okay, so um, do you want me to go through uh, before we go through that the 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 laydown of of the level of courts? Oh yes, yep. yeah. I jumped. I jumped that. Yeah. yeah. The, ultimately, the power the not ultimately, but the Supreme Court being the highest court in the land. The next yeah. level down is the U.S. Court of Appeals, um, which the Court of Appeals are going to hear obviously appeals from the district courts and then reviews from the Supreme Court. And there are um, 13 Court of Appeals, uh, 12 regional Court of Appeals, and then, of course, um, the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. And then there are 94 district courts, and then there are what we call special courts, um, which would include Bankruptcy Court, Court of International Trade, and Court of Federal Claims, uh, which basically... uh, hearing lawsuits against the United States. Um, yeah. 
and and I, you know, I think you're going to see um, a system. It, it's it seemingly gets behind further and further behind. There are no limitations other than statutes of limitations on the appeal process. But uh, man, we're we're hearing case <clears throat> after case, and well, you know, I don't get it too far ahead of myself on uh, Supreme Court cases setting precedents but now some of those are being challenged as we speak so yeah. so we'll go we'll go to section two here the the court's authority um so all cases laws and treaties uh that arise under the supreme under the constitution is the supreme court's authority uh or the court's authority and any conflict between the united states or and citizens of the united states and any state and the country or state and state, if that makes sense, uh, is jurisdiction. Yeah. The state versus state goes right to the Supreme Court. Um, the best example I give you is the one that I repeatedly talked about for um, all 31 years of my teaching career, Kansas versus Nebraska over Republican River Basin. Um, and that's going to oh, yeah. not, not come up again every year. I don't think we're going to have a problem this year with uh, the, the amount of, even though there have been some drought areas, but uh, what it boils down to uh, are the lawsuits coming about because of not criminal, but civil, civil, uh, civic case, civil cases, uh, lawsuits for money. So, so any, any kind of conflict between a state versus state goes right to the Supreme court. Um, so you get into original jurisdiction the Supreme Court does have original jurisdiction in those cases. Plus, any time a high-ranking government official is in a lawsuit, and we'll talk about some of those later on, 2000, Gore versus Bush, mm-hmm. uh, or Bush versus Gore, I'm sorry, um, and then a number of cases. But the big one coming coming down the uh, always that I always say that started it all off actually – in 1803 was Marbury versus Madison, which we'll talk about here in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and just an, ex- an example of the original jurisdiction. Uh, the first case the Supreme Court will hear is actually yeah. uh, a state versus state. It's uh, uh, um, Mississippi versus Tennessee. And of course, it, it involves groundwater, which always usually does. Um, and so, yep, that's, you, you know, they'll, they'll hit the, the original jurisdiction point right away uh this term so the question i always get is if it starts out in the supreme court can it be appealed and like who do you appeal it to you can you can't you you can't send it down for a review because it originated in the supreme court so those nine justices uh if they make a decision they can they can also just load it onto the docket for later but like you said, they've they've agreed to hear the case, so it's there's going to be a decision of some kind. Yep, yep. Um, and then um, this is not specific to the Supreme Court itself, but this is a overarching federal court. Uh, the last point is a trial by jury. Um, oh, yeah. other other than impeachment, which we talked talked about in the first two articles, um, all crimes shall be by jury. Um, and held in the state in which the crimes were committed. Um, I can't think of any specific time that that has been oh. changed due to the um, the known 
you know, the, the popularity of the issue. I, I think of, you know, the, the Ted Bundy cases. Uh, he, he had murders spanning four states, but was only tried in, in um, Florida. So it's one of those things where, you know, they, they got to talk about it. But even even with his you know, spree, serials, you know, murders, it was still held in the state, which which felt like they had the best argument and maybe the, the most lethal penalty. And, you know, even with as many people that knew about Ted Bundy at the time, though I was not alive for this. Um, this is what I understand of the situation. They still had to have it within the state of Florida. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, yeah, that's, that's a great example. Um, yeah. I did, you don't hear that much on federal cases, but um, on, on some state cases, you're going to hear, well, this person was wanted in, you know, arrested in Nebraska was wanted in Missouri or wherever. And you think, okay, they're going to go to the, the crime. They're going to go to the location where the crime originates. Uh, not always. They're going to go, I, I can think of the Ann Saluti uh, kidnapping in Kearney, Nebraska, uh, where th- that guy was wanted in five states, and Omaha, Nebraska, got the trial. And um, I won't repeat what the what the uh, the accused told the judge um, <laughs> because I think he was trying to go with a, an insanity plea and lost dearly. He I think he got three consecutive ninety nine year terms. For, for his crimes. So, yeah. What if he'll get out? Yeah, he'll probably get on good behavior like, uh, uh, you know, Sirhan, Sirhan. So, yeah. So. Well, I mean, that's just kind of opening opening the can of worms to dealing with, you know, judicial ref- or uh, justice reform and whatnot, you know, overpopulation yeah. of prisons. Anyway, that's a whole different, different thing. Uh, so, as you teased earlier, Marbury versus Madison, this is, I mean, it's hard to argue there's a more important Supreme Court case uh, just because of what it did, A, for the Supreme Court, and B, for our understanding of, of how the judicial branch works. Um, you know, there's a lot of other, you know, very important cases that, that we'll see later on, but this is definitely the first of, and, and the greatest, Um so, Dad, why don't you give us the backstory? Yeah, this is where John Marshall goes to town here. So, um, obviously, this is the concept of of judicial review, looking at cases, um, looking into all right, how how what happens in a transition? Jefferson, eighteen hundred election, it's uh, it goes to ballot after ballot after ballot. Um, where Jefferson ends up finally defeating uh, Aaron Burr uh, and defeats John Adams as well. But uh, before Adams leaves office and Jefferson is sworn in, Congress passed the Judiciary Act of 1801, and that created new courts, adding judges as judges and allowing the president, which at that time would still be John Adams, to appoint judges by constitutionality. There you have the, the judicial review check. Um, one last one last appointment by the Adams administration uh, was to to appoint a man who had become a bitter rival to his administration and um, to frustrate Jefferson, who is his bitter rival, obviously, 
and that act uh, appointed 16 new new circuit judges and 42 new judges justices of the peace and the appointees were approved by the senate but not valid until the commission had been delivered by the secretary of state and there you have madison who happens to be james madison secretary of state well the the plaintiff the, the plaintiff marbury was appointed as a justice in washington dc um but never received his commission. So Marbury verse, uh, uh, petitioned the Supreme Court to hear his case that he was uh, not delivered his commission by then Secretary of State James Madison. Yep. Uh, and that opened up a lot of can of worms. So Yeah. Well, he's, essentially what he did was he sued James Madison. And um, there were three questions that were posed to the court in this case. Um, essentially, so when the Supreme Court is, it, you know, grant cert or you know, a case comes to their desk, there there's always a question that they're looking at or multiple, and it's it's always constitutional related, and they are doing their best to answer that question, specifically that question, not try and get too broad, too narrow, you know, looking at you know what all goes into it, and so if you hear about you know a I think of of um, oh, the it was the uh, the the last coffee shop or cake shop, um, the wedding, the, yeah, the the wedding uh, issue in uh, Colorado. the uh, The decision was a seven to two narrow opinion, and so you think, well, seven to two—that's not really narrow. Well, narrow is describing the scope, so in terms of the decision that they grant it's or they 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 decide it's you know how broad are we going to have this versus how narrow and the more narrow the more specific to the specific case that it is dealing with at the time and the more broad is the more you know far reaching um used going to be used as precedent in the future um yeah and 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 we see uh here Marshall uses uh, both, actually, uh, a narrow and broad view to answer uh, each question differently. And so the first question, do the plaintiffs have a right to receive their commissions? Can they sue for their commissions in court? And does the Supreme Court have the authority to order the delivery of their commission? And Marshall, in, in his brilliant opinion, um, and I, I, I love John Marshall, I'm currently... The, the, the biography I'm going through is John Marshall biography, so I'm, I'm enjoying it immensely. Um, but uh, his opinion was uh, brilliantly answered, um, and the first two uh, questions were with a resounding yes. So plaintiffs have a right to receive their commissions, and they can sue for their commissions in court. Um, Marbury, and then he was actually joined by a couple other plaintiffs that had not received their commissions yet. Um, but Marbury was the name on it, on the case. Um, the third question is where Marshall flexed his legal mind and set the precedent for judicial review that now runs synonymous with the Supreme Court. In the opinion, Marshall actually sides with Madison and Jefferson narrowly. So here we see the first two are broad. You know, yes, you can you can sue for these commissions, and um, uh, yes, these do they do have the right to receive their commissions. So that's going to be viewed as okay. So from here on out, 
anytime a judge is, you know, said they're, they're going to be, you know, they're named, appointed and go through the process of being confirmed, they will receive their commissions. If they don't, they can sue to get them. Um, but here we see narrowly uh, that due to the provision of the due to the provision in the Judiciary Act of 1789 that enabled Marbury to bring his claim to the Supreme Court uh, being rendered unconstitutional. So the Judicial Judiciary Act of 1789 sought to extend the court's original jurisdiction beyond Article Two or Article Three, Section Two, which is this article, uh, section of this article. Uh, Marshall's opinion reasoned that the the writ of mandamus was the proper way to seek a remedy for the issue at hand. Uh, so broadly setting precedent for the next time this issue arises, this is how it's going to be handled. There will be a writ of mandamus given. Um, however, the court could not issue it right now because uh, the Judiciary Act of 1789 conflicted with the Constitution. Due to Article 6, Clause 2, also known as the Supremacy Clause, uh, placing the Constitution before laws. Congress did not have the power to modif modify the Constitution through regular legislation. So what that's saying is, is it had to be part of an amendment, not through a uh, legislative act. And it's just, it's so brilliant because even if Marshall said, hey, you guys have to give them this commission, Jefferson and Madison weren't going to do it. Marshall is a well-known Federalist. Adams was a well-known Federalist. Jefferson and Madison, well-known Democratic Republicans. Jefferson and Adams pretty much hated each other at this point. Um, and so Jefferson probably viewed this, and probably rightly so, that Adams was just trying to frustrate him like to no end by making him you know, this act and then right. appointing all these justices. And so Marshall, you know, he was a politician beforehand, so he kind of had that, you know, a little political savvy with it where he knew Jefferson and Madison weren't going to abide by, you know, something I said. So here's kind of a little out for me. And uh, it, it's a good out because it is 100% accurate and correct. Um, and it's just, I, I mean, he, he flexes his legal brain to no end in this one. And it, it's impressive. Yeah. That's, that's Marshall. That's Marshall in a nutshell. Um, we don't have, we have great, uh, we have great minds and intelligent people serving today, but they don't, uh, they don't handle things like Marshall, John Marshall did. Of course, the world has changed so much. Um, had there been social media back in the day, then Marshall would have been blasted left and right. Um, because, well, most well, I don't know if he'd been blasted because most people weren't educated enough to understand what he was saying. Um, so, what what eventually comes out of this is you will actually see uh, amendments passed later on to you know just to, to kind of smooth this over the fort like you mentioned Fourteenth Amendment uh, in 1868 after the Civil War. Um, and then that's where the courts can apply all the Bill of Rights to the states, uh, as well as the national government being required for the Bill of Rights. So it, all the states have to adhere to the Bill of Rights, which are your first 10 amendments, which we will probably cover later on, uh, as well as 
being applied by the federal government. And you'll find out that a lot of states, even in 2020, 2021, struggle with applying those uh, those provisions and protecting our bill, our rights to uh, to have uh, protection from legalities and pieces of legislation not going through the proper step-by-step procedure, uh, the due yeah. process. Yeah, and I think something we'll see more is um, state legislations trying to get through uh, bills that you know, side with their, their political philosophy or their political stance on an issue <clears throat> and ignore the thing that they're arguing for that the other side, you know, yeah wants and i i mean i there's a lot of instances of this but i mean just think about you know you're this whole mask mandate thing has been crazy already but you've got you know florida you know everyone has been saying for for a year and a half let's let the local governments decide we don't need a federal mask mandate let let the local people decide so that's what they're doing in Florida, and two school districts have mandated masks. Well, because you know a Republican is is a governor there, and he doesn't like mask mandates and doesn't believe they should exist. He decided to make a executive order saying that you know I'm going to do this if you don't take them away, basically discipline them. And it's like you literally just spent 16 months arguing for the local decision makers local to control. make the decisions. And now you're going to flip that on its head because you disagree with, you know, it's just, it makes, it, it's the hypocrisy on both sides. And this is why we want to do this. We want to take away the, the political. It's politics. Yeah. And, the, yeah. And, and there's, there's a right or left. There's almost no gray area now, which for someone like me who exists in that very moderate, I'm the, I wish I could be an independent, but in Nebraska, the, the primaries you're, and the independents, yeah. there's no you're, say for it. So your ballot is very short. Yeah. And so you got to have, you got to be a part of a party. And so I, you know, it's, it's being a Republican with no real landing area right now, or a Democrat with no real landing area right now, if you're, you know, in the more moderate middle of the pack centrist is what I call it, but it's just hard. Um, anyway, that was, you know, something we didn't necessarily want to go down, but it just kind of happened. Um, so the next thing that pops up, uh, the, the Judiciary Act of, of 1925, um, which is also known as the Judges' Bill because it was written by a group of judges commissioned by Supreme Court Justice William Taft, as you mentioned in the, the beginning part of, of this, um, this episode. Uh, it's also known as the Churchiorari Act, and that's a hard, na- hard thing to say. Uh, but essentially, uh, Churchiorari means a writ or order by which a higher court reviews a decision of a lower court. So here, here's where we kind of see um, the, the modern Supreme Court come into being. Um, in uh, 19, it was 19, it was began the process in 1922, but it was um, officially voted in and made a, made a law in 25. Uh, so the bill actually written by a group of three judges, justices, uh, to help reduce the workload of the Supreme Court, because at that time, every single appellate uh, case that came to their desk, they pretty much had to hear it. They could not hear it. And I mean, you think about right now, there's between seven thousand and eight thousand petitions, or you know, uh, 
writs of certiorari uh, given to filed with the Supreme Court. And out of that, they take about 80 a year. Um, and so this this bill was to help ease, you know, their workload. Um, and uh, it's with the passage of this bill that we now see the Supreme Court uh, have to grant a writ of certiorari or, as they say, just grant cert now um, in order for any case uh, to hit their desk and for the court to hear oral arguments. Uh, prior to this, like I said, the Supreme Court had virtually every appeals case that would come across their desk. Now, the petitioner must file that writ and then wait until the justices decide uh, if they will take the case or not. And it takes at least four justices to agree to grant a specific case. So essentially what they do is, is they form this uh, cert pool and um, main, the judges basically will have their um, their clerks go through the pool of the district that they oversee. And uh, they'll go through and they'll kind of write, you know, this is what it's about. Uh, these are the arguments. This is the question posed. Um, this is what we, you know, this is probably how, what we should do with it. We should, you know, not touch it and let the, um, the circuit court's decision stand or the district court decision stand. Um, or we should take this up. Um, that kind of thing, and so at least four of the four of the nine justices have to agree to grant cert. Um, and the problem that has started to arise in recent terms is the decreasing amount of cases the court is hearing, and part of that is because of what has become known as the shadow docket, which you just mentioned. There was a decision handed down. Well, it wasn't so much a decision, more of just a uh, we're going to wait, and because there's a case that we're hearing. Uh, that this could that could affect this, and we don't want to tip our hands, so we're going to be really vague with what we write. Basically, is what happened last night, and so um, uh, yeah, it's become a big problem. A lot of the people I listen to and and legal scholars uh, scholars are having a, a big to do about the shadow docket with with good reason, and we'll talk about that next week um, a little more. But uh, what tends to happen in appellate jurisdiction cases, so this is the, these are the ones that are not original jurisdiction. Uh, the court essentially has three options. Uh, it can uphold the lower court decision, which basically means it, it, the decision is final and it agrees with the prior decision. Two, it reverses the lower court decision. It says the lower court got this wrong and here's how um, and why. And then this is the final decision or it can remand it back to the lower court with specific instructions. So uh, essentially what it would do is it would say, you know what, the, the lower court didn't look at this thing or these things like it should have. So we're going to remand it back to that court. And uh, the, those, those judges have to look at it um, with these specific instructions. So they have to add these, you know, these things back to the, uh, the case that when they hear it again. Um, and so it, it basically, I mean, it's, it's a really, really specifically written act, but it's one that was, you know, I mean, it's, it's been needed because it gives those, it, it presents good boundaries for the judges. Yeah. And <clears throat> the, the rule of four, or as you say, the four judges, 
um, to come out and say they're going to hear a case. The number, like you said, the numbers used to be almost well, not twice as many cases being heard, but the number of cases has decreased significantly. And you don't hear, you don't seemingly get all of the uh, the decisions out uh, out of the court system like we used to. Uh, and made public like we used to, um, usually on a Friday. And I think everybody knows why they re release those on a Friday. Uh, because if you release them on a Monday, you have the whole week to listen to the, uh, the negatives and, and, and the opposition to it. But um, it's not like we can overturn a Supreme Court case, which a lot of people actually think they can. Uh, no, you can't. The president cannot overturn the case, and neither can the court or the, the Congress, other than the, obviously to make some changes, uh, either uh, trying to impeach or remove a, a, a justice, which has not happened and probably won't. But uh, it, yeah. yeah, or, or political activists, judicial activists, um, and restraints being put on the judges because they are seemingly doing more than they're supposed to instead of just interpreting the constitution they're trying to validate new new policy and new law yeah well and, and well so i mean I, I hate to bring it up but abortion is such a big hot topic that and a lot of people talk about roe v wade and that was the first one that that really set the stage for abortion but uh there was a, there was a, a court case known as casey that came along after and uh, essentially rendered the um, the, the um, I, I'm blanking on it, but the um, rules, so to speak, of, of you know how when is an abortion necessary? So yeah. the the outline of when an abortion is necessary in Roe v. Wade has essentially been overturned because it no longer is the precedent because. Casey has set a new standard of of understanding um, where where that line is for necessary um, uh, or not necessary. And so, yeah, it's and and overturning a, a previous case is or a previous decision is going to be darn near impossible. Um, and you you we see it in the civil rights cases, yeah. you know. 1800s you know early 1900s you know there was a lot of issues and then you see in the 50s 60s 70s um you kind of see them say yeah no we were wrong in how we looked at this this was not okay so they essentially overturn it uh, but the court's decision still stands as um, a decision they made that decision never goes away it's just there's a more recent decision that changes what the precedent is essentially right. is what happens. Um, yeah. So the last section, section three, uh, dad, why don't you, uh, you close this out? And that's, that's the definition of treason, uh, being the only, the only crime def defined by the constitution. Um, and obviously that is any kind of uh, act against the United States government, whether it's, uh, trying to overthrow the government, um, starting a war, which, you know, basically terrorism uh, or aiding and abetting uh, fugitives uh, from giving information uh, to an enemy um, or, or uh, two witnesses needing are needed, though, to convict 
or to um, to convince the government of treason. And then obviously uh, confessions need to be made. And the punishment set by Congress just depends on the time period. Uh, it, the harshest, severest crime punishment is sentenced to de death, the death penalty, uh, more likely lifetime in prison. And there have been some cases where a person is expelled out of the United States. Uh, losing, We can lose our citizenship. It's not a complete guarantee. So... Yeah, I mean it's it's still it's still a hard hill to climb for for it's it's hard to convince. Yeah, you know to uh, you know get the treason conviction and then you know, uh, but uh, so that will conclude uh, the look at the constitution constitutional side of Article Three. Uh, next week we're actually going to do a little uh, side project with Article Three and look at. Uh, the shadow docket, which we mentioned before, um, and that essentially is the uh, emergency orders that the Supreme Court is is uh, uh, looking at and seeing. They're not hearing oral arguments for; they're just looking at. You know, this has come up. We need an emergency. You know, relief from this. Help us. And so, um, the shadow docket, and then uh, we're going to do a deep dive into uh, the effects of the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, and the Supreme Court's decisions after that, which, um, uh, you know, we could probably save this for the 14th Amendment, but the 14th Amendment is so, so big that it just seems like it would fit here to just go through and see exactly how that amendment really shaped the judicial review process and how the justices used it to, uh, you know, you could argue move, move the United States forward. Uh, but essentially just make the decisions that they made in the, the specific cases we're going to look at. Yeah. Um, so, well, you know, subscribe uh, on your, your favorite podcast app, um, Spotify, Google podcasts or Apple podcasts. Um, like and leave a review if, if you'd like, uh, you know, we'd appreciate that obviously. Um, and we will catch you guys next week.